Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take our Bibles in hand and turn to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. We want to finish up this morning with a section of Scripture that features John the Baptist very prominently. It began with John sending two of his disciples to Jesus to question Christ if he indeed were the Messiah or should they look for someone else. John, of course, was venting through these two disciples his own frustration that Jesus, in his opinion, was not behaving as the Messiah should. He was not judging, but healing. He was not striking people dead, but raising them from the dead. Jesus, you recall, was not harsh with his response to John. Rather, he reminded him of the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, and that he, Jesus, was fulfilling them one by one. Then he used this opportunity to teach the crowd that had gathered some great lessons about the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Now, Jesus called John the greatest born of women. He reminded the people that they were not attracted to some vacillating spokesman, but to a true prophet sent from God who was bold and unflinching in the face of opposition and danger and ultimately death. And he then turned his attention to the Pharisees and scribes who had rejected John's message and therefore had had rejected their Messiah because John's message simply was directed to prepare them for Jesus. So let's read our text, Luke 7, 31. To what shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now here in this passage, Jesus, as always, the master teacher, uses a very simple illustration to describe those who have received Jesus and those who have rejected him. First of all, he uses a parable. And you know, a parable is a story that has a very significant spiritual meaning. And so he begins the parable with a very common phrase, expression, to what shall I compare this generation? Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. Teachers often use parables and they would often introduce their parables with this little phrase. He says, I'm going to compare you all to something else. Now it's the equivalent of saying once upon a time in our culture, it tells people to get ready for a story. And the story is about children who were sitting in a marketplace. Now the marketplace in every ancient city was a place called the Agora. The Agora was the center of town. It's where the farmers and the merchants would gather on appointed days to buy and trade and to sell their produce and their wares. It was an open market area. You may be familiar with uh, our modern expression or really a, a, a problem people have called agoraphobia. People who are afraid to go outside of their home and mix and mingle in public 
are said to have agoraphobia. And it comes from this word for marketplace. It's a public place where people gather. And when the market was not in session, in other words, the farmers were not there, the merchants were not there, it made a perfect playground for the children of the village. When children get together, they play games. That is universally true no matter what culture you go to in the world. And when I was a boy, I was an organizer of these games. And when I was a kid, the games usually surrounded whatever sport happened to be in season at that time. I realized very early on in my elementary school education that we only got 25 minutes a day to play outside at recess. And we were wasting five of those 25 minutes, I thought, picking teams. And so I, I devised a system of hand signals in our classroom so that we could pick the team during the teacher's teaching time <laughs> and save our five minutes to play. Well, Jewish children were no different 2,000 years ago. Now, they didn't play football or baseball, but they played games that imitated what adults did, particularly there in the marketplace. And I'm sure they played store. They had seen merchants trading money for goods, and they probably pretended to do that. My kids do that all the time. And then I'm sure that they played games from ceremonies. Don't you remember being a kid and playing dress up and pretending to get married? They would do that. And the other thing they would play is, is funeral, because those were the two events that were very public in Jewish society. In fact, here in chapter 7, we have one of those funerals. Do you remember the little village of Nain? Jesus was approaching as he looked to the gate of the city, he heard a commotion. Remember, funerals in those days were quite a spectacle. They would hire professional weepers and wailers that would go before the procession. They would hire flautists, drummers, who would beat out the time. And by the time they got to the graveside, the entire village had joined. And the kids had probably seen this week after week, year after year, and they would pretend to do those things. And then they would celebrate the festivals and the weddings and those kind of things. So Jesus says, you're like children who are in the marketplace playing, and they say this to one another. We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. He compared his generation to spoiled children who were never satisfied. No matter what God did for them, no matter what sign he sent, they willfully, stubbornly refused to participate and believe that Christ was his Messiah. John MacArthur calls this section of scripture the parable of the brats. You probably don't have that section marked in your Bible. But this is the parable of the brats. What, what Jesus was saying, you are like spoiled children. Remember he was speaking to the Pharisees, the scribe. The common people, by and large, had believed John's message. They had been baptized, they had repented of sins, but the spiritually elite said, we're not participating. Now, that is a very unusual analogy to our ears. It might have been more familiar in their day, but you've probably never heard a, an illustration exactly like that. And so thankfully, the Lord has helped us out by explaining its meaning. Look at verse 33. He said, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and, and sinners. So, he says the, the, the two comparisons, the funeral dirge and the celebration, represent two people who have come teaching. The first, John the Baptist. Remember when John the Baptist came, he said he was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And when the people would come out to hear him, he preached the same message every day. 
a message of judgment and wrath and damnation. And many of the people heard that, and Jesus said they believed that God's judgment about them was correct. They said, God is just. God says, I'm a sinner in, in a view of His wrath, and He's right. I am a sinner. I do deserve His wrath. But the Pharisees wouldn't admit that. They stubbornly, willfully refused to believe the message like spoiled children. In other words, they had the same evidence that the common people did. They heard a voice from heaven that affirmed that Jesus was the Son of God. They understood that John the Baptist was different, that he was a prophet. They saw Jesus raise the dead. They saw the miracles. But in the mountain of evidence, they would not believe. And they certainly wouldn't believe John's message of judgment. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and his message is that he offers forgiveness of sin. Remember, Jesus said he did not come to judge, but that through him all may have eternal life. This is a glorious and a joyful message. In fact, we call it the gospel, the good news. But the Pharisees and the scribes were unmoved by Jesus and his message as well. And so John was the funeral dirge that the children sang about. He preached a sad and a gloomy message. They wouldn't believe it. Jesus preached a joyous message of regeneration and new life. They wouldn't believe that. But really, it's worse than that. Not only did the Messiah uh, elicit apathy from the Pharisees, it's worse than that. They were openly hostile to him. You see, the gospel is not fully preached until you have both the bad news and the good news. See, John the Baptist and Jesus were not preaching a different message. They were preaching the same message. See, that's what the Apostle Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, are often accused of. People who read the New Testament and they hear things from Paul from Ephesians like, Salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. They say, well, well Paul preached a message of, of grace and mercy. But then they come to the book of James, and James says, Faith without works is dead. Many people hear that and they say, well, they're preaching two different gospels. James is preaching a gospel of works and Paul is preaching a gospel of grace. No, they're both preaching a gospel of grace. It's that they are correcting two different errors as it relates to the gospel. You see, James faced an error in his day that people thought, well, if salvation is by grace, I don't have to participate. I'll sit on my hands or I'll just live like I've always been living and call myself a Christian. And James says, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you've got to exhibit fruit. You've got to have a changed life because a declaration of faith without accompanying fruit or works is worthless. It's not real. It's not valid. And Paul was in opposition to a group who were saying, the way one is made right with God is doing a lot of good works and earning his favor. And Paul says, no, you can never do enough good works to undo the bad that you've done. And it's all of grace and it's all of God. See, they were preaching the same truth. They were like two swordsmen fighting not against each other, but fighting back to back against two different opponents. Well, Jesus and John the Baptist, in the similar way, were preaching the same gospel from two different perspectives. John was saying, you deserve judgment. You deserve God's wrath. You deserve hell. And the people agreed with that assessment. And then Jesus comes along and says, you're right, you do deserve God's sin and wrath and judgment, but I'll offer you instead eternal life. See, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. What Jesus said to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. He didn't say you don't deserve to perish. He said if you believe in Him, you would not perish, but have everlasting life. But these Pharisees, these scribes, would not believe either side of that equation. Isn't it interesting how two different people can hear the exact same message and it elicits within them such polar opposite reactions? Hold your place here in Luke and turn to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addresses this situation of the different reactions to the gospel message. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul compares the Christian life to a Roman triumph. Now, a Roman triumph was a parade. Remember we talked about how the Roman soldiers would go out and they would conquer new territory. And when they would win the battle, they would parade the trophies of war back into Rome, ultimately leading to the emperor who was seated up on a throne. And it was very organized. <clears throat> First would come the foot soldiers, and then the horsemen and the chariots. And behind them, slaves would carry the spoils of war, the artifacts, the things that had been won materially through the war. And then would come the slaves and the soldiers who were captured in battle. And the people would scatter flower petals along the cobbled streets. And as the horses' hooves and the chariots and the slaves made their way through the streets on this triumph, it would create a wonderful perfume and aroma as the flower petals were crushed under their feet. Now keep that in mind as Paul declares the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. He says we were prisoners, we were enemies of God, and He won us through the work of Christ on the cross, and now wherever we go, we are His trophies of grace. And as we go through life, we're crushing these petals in the street, and it becomes an aroma because of the knowledge of Him in every place. Now verse 15, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the one an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things. So Paul says, wherever Christians grow in the world, we are putting off this aroma, this perfume spiritually, because we've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And wherever we go, some people will smell that perfume and be attracted to it. And some people will smell it and be disgusted by it. Haven't you found that's true at your place of work and at school and on your sports team? When you attempt to live for Jesus, when you are vocal about your faith, some people, it's like they've been looking for it all their life and they can't wait to talk with you about it. And other people say, look, get away from me. I don't want to hear that Jesus stuff. Jesus says that's exactly what his generation was like. John the Baptist came preaching, and some were attracted to it, and some were repulsed by it. You, you men, do you remember when your wife was, was pregnant? I can remember when my wife was pregnant with one of our four children. I, remember, I don't remember which. But, but I had decided I was going to be a wonderful husband that day. And so I knew she'd be tired. And I came home from work, and I immediately started putting together supper. And I was going to put together my specialty, which is spaghetti. If you can boil water, you can make spaghetti. So I opened up the, the jar of ragu sauce and I pour it in and turn it on and boy, it smelled good. 
The whole house to me was just full of this aroma. I couldn't wait for her to get home and praise me for being such a wonderful husband. And she came in from doing her errands. I heard the garage door open. It closes. She comes in the side door. And the first word out of her mouth was, yuck. (laughs) What is that awful smell? You see, because she was pregnant, she stayed sick a lot of the time. Nothing smelled good to her. Well, to, to, to me and, and the other kids, that's, it smelled great. It's the same smell, you see. It's just your response to it. And Jesus says that's what happen, happens with the gospel. And so it begins with John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you said he has a demon. Now, that was literally true. Remember, John had sort of uh, scuttled all the norms of society. He had left town and civilization. He'd gone to live out in the wilderness. Literally. And his diet, you recall, was living off the land, locusts and wild honey. And his clothing was not the soft clothing of royalty, but an old rough camel's hide. And further, Luke one fifteen says that from his birth he drank no alcohol, which was part of what's called a Nazaritic vow. And so here's a guy, he didn't hang out with other people, he looked kind of crazy, he lived off the land eating bugs, and, and the people, rather than saying, this guy has devoted himself to God, let's listen to this holy man, they say, well, that guy's crazy. He's got a demon. And then on the other hand, Jesus comes along, he says, the son of man, which is Jesus' favorite expression about himself. It's an Old Testament term for the Messiah. He says the Messiah comes along and he does eat and drink. By the way, eating and drinking just signifies he lived normally. That's what we all do every day. We get up. We take a shower, we eat breakfast, and we drink. That, that's what we do. And Jesus says, I live just like other people. Grew up in a typical home. Everyone knew his mother and father, Mary and Joseph. He went to synagogue. He didn't live out in the wilderness. He grew up as men grow up, and, and he lived among people. And he was often found having meals with his friends. And so they didn't say, well, look at this guy. He's a great teacher, and he heals people, but he's just like one of us. Isn't God gracious to send a man like Jesus? No, they said Jesus is lazy. See, John's out there doing this full time, but Jesus is hanging out with his pals. In fact, they accused him of being a party animal. Jesus likes to hang out with the wild bunch, they said. Well, you see, you can't please everybody, right? Some people are always going to to think the worst of you. It reminds me of one of Aesop's fables. You remember Aesop was a, a Greek man who, who wrote stories usually having to do with animals. And one of my favorite story of Aesop was the story of a man, a boy, and a donkey. It goes like this. A man and his son were once going with their donkey to market. And as they were walking along by its side, a countryman passed them and said, You fools, what's a donkey for except to ride upon? So the man put the boy on the donkey, and they went on their way. But soon they passed another group of men, one of whom said, See that lazy boy? He lets his father walk while he rides on the donkey. So the man ordered the boy, Get off the donkey, and he got on. But they hadn't gone far when they passed two women, one of whom said to the other, Shame on that lazy man to let his poor little son trudge along. Well, the man didn't know what to do. But at last he took the boy up before him on the donkey. So here's the man and the boy both riding on the donkey. By this time they had come into town and the passers-by began to jeer and laugh and point. And the man stopped and asked, what are you laughing and pointing at? 
And the men said, Aren't you ashamed of yourself for overloading that poor donkey, you and your hulking son? And the man and boy got off and tried to think what to do. So they finally found a solution. They thought and they thought until they last cut down a pole. And they tied the donkey's feet to it. Now get the picture. They tied the donkey's feet, two on either end of the pole, and between them they began to carry the donkey with the pole on their shoulder. And they came along amid the laughter of all they met until they came to the bridge. Then the donkey kicked one of his feet loose, kicked out and caused the boy to drop his end of the pole. And in the struggle, the donkey fell over the bridge into the river and drowned. That will teach you, said an old man who had been following them, please all and you will please none. Well, that's a simple story, but it tells the same truth that Jesus is conveying. There are some people who will never be satisfied with the gospel, no matter what evidence they receive. Now, Jesus said that that generation, like a, a bunch of spoiled children who refused to participate. The reason they believed was not for evidence in the lacking. They were there, as I said, when God spoke from heaven and said, Behold my beloved Son. They were there when Jesus raised the dead, when He turned the, the loaves and the fishes into food for the people to eat. But they had hardened their heart and they refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were fickle. The fickleness of unbelief. Now Jesus, of course, never set out like this man in the story to please anyone. Jesus decided long ago that the only one He cared to please was His Father in heaven. Dear friends, I think that's great advice for all of us. The one to whom we should aim our pleasure is God the Father. Now Jesus closes this simple story with a simple application. He says this, look at it. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now that seems to be just stuck there without any relationship to the story, but it is very much related to what Jesus has said. When Jesus says wisdom is vindicated, he's speaking of the gospel. Remember what Paul says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he sort of says a similar thing that Jesus does about the two reactions to the gospel. In fact, in that ancient world, really people thought of themselves in two categories. There were Jews and there were pagans, or what we would call Gentiles. And Paul says the gospel to the Gentiles is a stumbling block. That is, that, that they could not get around it. And what they couldn't get around was its simplicity, right? That the only way to be saved is to put your faith and trust in what Christ had done. Because the Jewish, excuse me, the Greek or the Roman mindset was that of personal achievement, the way you earned the favor of the gods is by doing something heroic, by sacrificing something great or achieving some task that had been given you. Many of the stories and the myths of Greek and Roman theology had to do with winning the gods' favor through great effort. And all of a sudden, Paul and the other apostles come on the scene and they say, no, the way to be saved is to put your faith and trust in what this Jewish man, in their view of thinking, did for you in your place. They, that was a stumbling. They kept tripping 
on that. It was really foolishness to them. But the thing that tripped up the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, is that they had to come the same way as the Gentiles. Right? And this is what happened in John's day. The common people, for the most part, even the tax collectors, the most heinous of sinners, heard that God's assessment of them is that they deserve judgment, and they said, you know, that's right. And they were willing to come with humility, empty hands and empty pockets, and, and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. But the Pharisees who knew the Bible, the Old Testament, who felt themselves already to be right with God, often appealed to their Jewishness. And they said, look, we're children of Abraham. What do we have to worry about? And John the Baptist said, I tell you, don't say you're children of Abraham because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks here on the ground. And by being baptized by John in the wilderness, the people were saying, we're no better than the Gentiles. We recognize we're sinners as well, and we have to come the same way. The Pharisees said, no, we won't do that. Jesus says wisdom is vindicated by all our children. What does that mean? It's just another way of saying you will know them by their fruit. Who is right and who is wrong is not always easily assessed. Quite often, young pastors will ask me, who do you believe is the greatest preacher today? Who is the most spiritual person in the culture? And I always give them the same response. It's too early to tell. You see, we, we want to judge things too quickly. We, we don't have the patience or the time, we don't think, to, to allow the Lord to do the judgment in the long term. But Jesus says this, wisdom will be vindicated by her children. Or it might say in your translation, her fruit. It's really an agricultural expression. It means you will reap whatever you've sowed. And so those who sowed humility and trusted in Christ and His redeeming work are going to bear fruit for His kingdom. And those who put their faith and trust in themselves and their own ability are also going to reap fruit, but it's going to be fruit of damnation and destruction. Now we're getting close to a garden planting time. I'm getting excited. A few years ago, we decided to plant a, a garden. I told you the story before. My, my son, who's now six, was three at the time. And I'd been talking about getting things ready. And I got one of those trays that kind of looks like ice cubes where you put the top soil in and you get them started inside and then you transplant them outside. And he couldn't wait. So I went out to, to plant in my garage to find that all the seed packages had already been opened and poured into one big pile. And Andrew, our three-year-old, had planted already. And I said, son, what did you plant? He said, I don't know. We found out after they began to produce fruit. Now, it never crossed my mind whenever I harvested a bell pepper that Andrew had planted a banana tree. Because whatever you sow, you'll also reap, right? This is what Jesus is saying when He says, wisdom is vindicated by her children. The proof is in the pudding. You will know them by their fruit. Dear friends, let me ask you a very pointed question as we think of the Gospel today. Has the Gospel produced within you its fruit? Because the production of spiritual fruit is the only sure evidence of conversion and it's the only true way to assess whether or not you're born again. You say, well, Pastor, I, I walked an aisle when I was 12 years old. I shook a preacher's hand. I filled out a card. 
I was baptized even. Listen, that's not the evidence of salvation. The evidence of salvation is what kind of fruit are you producing? Is there love and joy and peace in your life? Do you have a desire for personal holiness? Are you making any attempt at, at obedience? You say, well, that, that's effort, that's work. Salvation is by, no. The Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're saved by the grace of God, but the evidence that you are saved is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in your life. And so if there's no desire for obedience, there's no hunger for the Word of God, there's no desire to fellowship with other Christians. There, there, there's no change in from what you used to be into to what Christ wants you to be. Dear friends, the Bible offers you no assurance of salvation. But if you put your faith and trust in Christ and, and you hate your sin, doesn't mean you're sinless. Doesn't mean you never sin, but when you do, you hate it. If there's a desire for fellowship with other believers, if there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness, then that's the Lord producing His fruit within you. And wisdom will be vindicated by those fruits. The gospel will always produce fruit. Not in the same measure with every person. Jesus said some 10, some 50, some 100 fold. But every true believer will produce some fruit. Is there evidence that you've been born again? If not, today's the day of salvation. He's not calling you to recommit to the same old path. He's calling you to be converted to despair of anything you've been trusting in before, to come to Him on His terms, broken-hearted, empty-handed, empty pockets, in humility, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You for John the Baptist, who though his faith was not perfect, was strong. He preached a message of sin and judgment and righteousness, and some heard it, they believed it, they were saved. Some heard it and rejected it. Jesus came on the scene and He preached a message of redemption and forgiveness and mercy. Some heard it, received it with joy. Some heard it, rejected it. And Father, it's no different today as we go out and share our faith. To some, it will be the sweetest perfume in their nostrils. They'll be attracted to it immediately. Others, Father, will turn away from it, reject it. Father, it's not up to us to save anyone. It's up to us to be faithful to take that gospel with us wherever we go. We pray, though, that you would draw many to saving faith today. We pray, Father, that uh, because of what Christ has accomplished in our place, that we would go out with boldness and share that good news to all in our environment. Lord, we pray you'd be honored. May we be doers of this word we hear today, and not just hearers. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.